Welcome back. Monday, January 11th. As we head into our second hour, we always do so on Mondays with uh, domestic and uh, national security updates and conversation with our friend Brandon Weikert, publisher of the Weikert Report and author of one of the most important books of last year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon, happy Monday. Not a lot has changed since last week, huh? <laughs> Happy Monday! Yes, uh, happy yeah, it Monday. Feels, feels like the whole feels like the whole world has been turned upside down in just a short amount of time. It know? sure does. I want to talk about the domestic stuff and all that, but yeah. first, because we didn't get to it last time, we got caught up on sure. it. I did want to do a little national security with you. Yeah, let's talk. Can we talk a little national security? We haven't had yeah, a chance let's do to. It. Yeah, let's give us a, give us a little update on what you're seeing and thinking, given the Biden team that's been announced, given uh, the muscle flexing, or at least verbal muscle flexing from Iran, uh, China, anywhere else I'm missing. Give us, give us, a, give us an overview. Give well, us, give us a security gonna... briefing. <laughs> okay. Well, I will start out with the biggest issue, which is China. And after last week's horrendous events on Capitol Hill, uh, China is making, uh, you know, hay with this because, as is Russia, they are playing those reprehensible images uh, on a loop and telling their people, this is what we're protecting you from. This is democracy on display. You don't want that here. Uh, and to be honest, many of their people are nodding in agreement. Um, the, the Chinese have also, in the last couple of weeks, I wrote about this last week at my website, uh, they've managed to secure one of the most important free trade deals uh, in probably the history of Europe and China uh, with the European Union. And the EU, led by Germany and France, as well as China, did this over the protestations of both the outgoing Trump administration, whom they hated anyway, and the incoming Biden administration, whom we are told they prefer. Uh, in fact, Europe in particular uh, outmaneuvered the Biden people. Joe Biden personally asked the EU reps who were negotiating the deal, please don't make this deal until I have a chance to be sworn in and until my people can go over it and consult with you. And they purposely did this deal. They signed off. They've been negotiating uh, it since 2013. Uh, and there was no indication until the last couple of months that they were going to go ahead with this. Uh, but the Europeans sensed an opportunity. America is at the weakest it's been probably since the start of the Civil War. And um, our enemies are starting to pick us clean. At that time, uh, also Russia and China are moving closer together. We've talked about that before. But now Russia's really feeling uh, no other choice but to move closer to China because what are we offering other than chaos? Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, not only are the Europeans our friends, but so too as it appeared that Israel and Australia and Japan and some of these other countries that we've taken for granted, I think, are now starting to make their own strategic calculations. They're starting to, I think, try to see what they can do uh, on their own. Israel has already announced they'll be rebuilding settlements for the first time in, you know, a few years now. Uh, you know, uh, Australia, even as they're still incensed by uh, the Chinese and the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, militarily, they're standing up to, to China, but economically, they too are signing these very, very generous free trade deals with, with Beijing that are you know, going to lock them in 
for decades to come. Japan is doing the same thing. So what you're watching right now, I think, is the complete rejiggering of the uh, the world order, and uh, it's America's being left in the dust. Um, and it would be easy for us to blame Joe Biden, but unfortunately, this is Donald Trump's fault as well, because, you know, one of the most important things a president can do with any party is the peaceful transition of power. And whether it was his fault or not, the bottom line is for the last six weeks, we've had a pretty tumultuous transition. And I understand there were concerns about fraud, and I understand there was chicanery going on. But at the bottom line, if you're asking me as a foreign policy and national security person, I prioritize those two things over anything else. And I'm looking at this as the rest of the world is looking at this. And we don't look good right now. And, and we look like a third world country right now. And I don't see it getting better. And uh, my great hope is that Joe Biden is able to keep his radical left base at bay and actually ends up being you know, a moderate expectation-busting president. I don't think it'll happen, but I, I'm praying to God that he ends up being this, this, this person that the left keeps saying he's going to be, the great unifier, because we need that right now. And I, and I hope that the president, as he leaves office, um, I really hope that he can stabilize, you know, his side of things, and uh, we can have a modicum of a peaceful transition, whatever our opinion on the election was, we are ripe for an attack right now. And I, I was very surprised when I was watching that insurrection going on. I was very surprised that there weren't infrastructure attacks uh, uh, by Russia and China. I was very surprised that there wasn't some type of anti-satellite weapons test by Russia. So, I mean, this is a very precarious position. And, and by the way, North Korea also. Here, the president, one of his greatest achievements was uh, the North Korean situation. And... For various reasons, uh, North Korea has now opted to start threatening the United States again, knowing that Biden's coming in and knowing that Biden is inimical to maintaining the agreement that Trump had made with uh, Pyongyang. So we're, we're entering a very precarious time right now. Now, when George W. Bush left office and Barack Obama came in, um, it was a uh, it was uh, seemingly, at least rhetorically at first, and then I guess more and more policy-wise, a reversal of a lot of what the Bush administration was doing yeah. with allies and uh, turning allies into enemies and engaging on the world stage, yeah. first with the apology tour and trying to, in some respects, reset the American image uh, abroad. Yeah. And, yeah. and and I, I get the sense especially with the team Biden is bringing in, that he thinks or the Biden administration thinks that that's an important thing. Begging the question, because I always thought it was overstated with regard to Bush. I think it's overstated now, too. But you tell me what your thoughts are. Begging the question as to just how much resetting does there need to be? Uh, it seems to me most of our allies you know, may feel they have to say certain things here and there, but we're pretty comfortable with the United States over the past four years. Uh, yeah, yes. The the only resetting that really needs to occur um, is the um, is the image of the United States as being anti-democratic, and um, that that's going to require us working more closely with the Europeans, the Canadians, and some of the Western allies, notably the kind of the the um, Euro Europeanized ones. Um, 
And that is an image that has been degraded, not just over the last four years, but over the last, really, at least since the Iraq War. And so this is a bipartisan problem, um, and I think it's important. I don't think it's the most important thing. I'm hearing from people I know in the Biden camp saying that they're going to do this League of Democracies, which is a great idea. But ultimately, the real issue is how do we form a coalition to contain China uh, and to prevent some of these rogue states from popping off, like Iran or North Korea, um, without without abandoning the prospect of, of luring some of the autocrats in those parts of the world to work with us rather than with China or Iran or North Korea or Russia. And so, you know, we, we should not become too um, committed to this, this, this rhetoric that we saw Obama and even George W. Bush with the Freedom Agenda commit to, where we sort of pretend to be Captain America going after all of the the monsters around the world. We really need to prioritize things like how we have the rule of law. That's more of a priority than, than illustrating our democracy uh, or how we have, um, uh, you know, the ability to be prosperous better and to be more dynamic economically and can attract people that way if we're talking soft power. Um, but, but, but the image issue really, it tends to be how Europe and Canada are viewing us and, um, you know, they haven't liked the last four years because we've really been standing up for our, for our rights in relation to our alliances and trade with them. And so the Europeans in particular are very excited about the prospect of having a, a Joe Biden in office who may not be as strong uh, on holding uh, our allies to account for when they say don't fund NATO properly or when they try to take advantage of us in free trade. I think it's very telling also that that free trade agreement between the EU and China, um, you know, they ignored Biden, and there's no indication that Biden is going to punish particularly Germany. Yeah, that that, raised, that actually raises the question I want to pose to you on the other side, which is, is it necessarily true that what may make other countries happy may not be in our best interest, even though it's about our behavior towards them. Let me pick up on that with you on the other side of this, if I can, Brandon. What is in our best interest, and how do we merge that interest to make it other people's interests rather than bow to their interests when it's not in our own? We'll be right back with more from Brandon Weicker. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This hour brought to you in part by Balance of Nature, the most effective whole food supplement on the market. It has kept me well for over a year now, including friends and family who love it as much as I do. Banana, blueberries, oranges, pineapple, carrots, spinach, zucchini, all locked into vegetarian capsules using their unique cold press process. You take it once a day and you get 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables. It's for your energy. It's for your health. It boosts your immunity, which is why I haven't gotten sick all year with it. And they have a great deal where they are offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give Balance of Nature a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. You'll love it as much as I do. Delighted to have with us as we do every Monday, Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space and publisher of the Weikert Report, doing some national security here for a moment. Uh, Brandon, 
Uh, my question in front of the break, um, if the Biden administration thinks it needs to restore certain um, international uh, alliances, reputations, etc., um, it may make those uh, institutions and certain countries happier. I don't know if it's necessarily better for the United States. And there is something about our allies wanting a strong United States, right? I mean, I get nervous when I see some of these players coming back, when I see uh, John Kerry and uh, right. who's failed at everything. Samantha she's Power. Samantha Steve Power. And, uh, yeah, and who's the one I, I the, the one who did the first North Korea deal? I can't. I'm blanking on her name. But oh, it, Sherman. Wendy yeah, Sherman? Wendy Sherman. All these characters oh, coming boy. back makes. Oh boy, they're bringing her back. Yeah, turns my blood a little oh, cold. Geez. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's important to note, and I think you mentioned this in the last segment. You know, I personally think that while our image abroad may have been damaged, um, the, the, the reason, you know, partly by what happened in the last few weeks, um, needlessly so, but overall, the last four years, and, you know, we're not going to be able to say this anymore because of what happened last week, uh, but over the last four years, the only real reason that our image has been, quote, damaged, this is specifically among the Western European and the, the Western, you know, uh, uh, you know, allies, uh, is because we actually were standing up for ourselves. Right. Um, you know, remember France in the 90s, they yeah. came up with the term hyperpolicism to define the Americas, which is actually a very derisive term. Uh, then they acted on this notion that they had to constrain American power, and that's why France, Germany, and Russia aligned to try to stop the American invasion of Iraq. Now, Iraq ended up being a disaster, but the reason the Europeans and the Russians were opposed to it was not out of any felty toward the truth. It was because they wanted to, to, to hem in American power. They were afraid of, you know, a robust American military right, of course. power. Sure. And it's the same logic now when you listen to the, the, you know, the Germans. You know, here are the Germans. They hated Trump's, you know, the, 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 the tariffs he wanted to do and the protectionist policies on trade. And yet, what is Germany other than a country that routinely relies, its entire economy is contingent on what they define as non-tariff trade barriers, which is really just trade barriers mm -hmm. of a protectionist, you know, sort. But so, you know, when Trump and an Amer or any American, you know, George W. Bush tried to impose steel tariffs, when these happen, it tends to rankle our allies significantly. And, you know, it does have some short-term economic fallout for us, but it's often a political statement, and it's often uh, a way of trying to galvanize our people behind the idea that we are a country, not a company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to have these capabilities here, and we need to also tell our allies, we may be your friend, but you can't take advantage of us. And if you do, we're going to make you pay a price for that. And, um, you know, so my concern is that Biden, who is of this very sort of internationalist worldview, uh, is going to really try to hem in American economic and military power in order to, you know, appeal to the allies who really fundamentally want a pliable America. And so I just, you know, I don't really know how I feel or think about this other than I'm very dubious. I do think we need to repair our image abroad, but I think, I think, uh, you know, acting in accordance with our interests is neither weak nor strong, it's just sensible. And the idea that we would somehow alienate our allies because we are protecting our interests, um, you know, like you said, a stronger America should, by definition, 
help these countries. But it does seem to me, yeah, no, I'm thinking of the example early on uh, in the Obama administration when um, the apology tour followed by the yanking of missile defense from Poland and the Czech Republic. There was this really interesting letter. It didn't get a lot of play. Maybe you saw it. I think it was signed by something like 15 or 20 leaders and former leaders of formerly Eastern European countries. Uh, people like Vaclav Havel and Lech Valenza, right. they were saying, you know, we're, we're a little worried here that we may have to be right. looking for a different ally. Yes, and this actually explains part of the reason why some of those Eastern European countries are actually looking to do business with China. Even though China uh, is now getting integrated with Russia, um, the concern is that the strategic lever... Uh, of the United States can't be pulled as easily, especially under a democratic regime. Remember, those Eastern European countries, notably Poland, are directly threatened. They're but a few hundred miles away from Russia's uh, front door. And uh, they have to live with that Damocles sword hanging over their heads of whether or not Putin's going to try to salami slice slice their country next, as he did to Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, as uh, Jacek Bartosiak, who's a friend of mine and who, who interviewed me recently for his podcast in Poland, you know, he told me, he said, you know, technically as a Pole, I live in Warsaw. He said, I can technically walk from Poland to Beijing if I really wanted to. He said, I wouldn't, but technically we're all connected by land and, and uh, you know, we're, we're right here on the front lines in Eastern Europe and the Americans have a sea that's separating them. And we don't, in Eastern Europe, know what the Americans are doing these days. It doesn't make any strategic sense. And so I think that, and this has sort of been going on for the last three administrations, uh, where we just don't seem to have an idea that when we do something like pulling the ballistic missile defense shield out of Poland, the kinds of signals it sends, Mm -hmm. not only to a country like Russia, but also to our allies, that we won't have their back. Right, right. And... You know, so we've talked about Europe and Russia and China a little bit. I think the Middle East is at, you know, one of its most interesting points in a generation or three. And I think that that (laughs) – no, I really do. And I I think a lot of that could be reversible too. Let me take this break and come back to you on the Middle East a little bit. Can we do that? Yeah. Be right back with more from Brandon Weikert. By the way, I wanted to put in a word also for that great film on the life of – Herman Cain, Porta CEO, The Incredible Journey of Herman Cain. It's one of the best films of last year, inspirational and entertaining. It's available at SalemNow.com. That's SalemNow.com. I knew Herman. He was a great man, and he represented every kind of value you would want. And, boy, his journey is the American dream. From poor to CEO, the incredible journey of Herman Cain, available at SalemNow.com. Use promo code PHOENIX. To save 20%. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert, publisher of The Weikert Report, author of Winning Space, is with us <coughs> doing a national, excuse me, national security tour. Brandon, talk to me a little bit about where we are in the Middle East. It, Iran is... Um, is probably uh, the most interesting player here in Saudi Arabia, the second most, I would say. But you, you set right. me straight. No, you're right. You're right. I, well, I would say this. I would say there's actually four. Um, I mean, really five. Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, and if you want to throw Pakistan in there, you can. Um, even though that's technically South Asia, but we'll just include that in the greater Middle East. 
Um, and those five players are, um, it's really interesting watching what's going on with them. Uh, and those five players are going to be very important for the next probably four or five years at least in shaping the Middle East. The uh, incoming Biden administration is committed to re-entering the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, the only problem is, is that even as somebody close to the Biden transition team said, given how fundamentally things have changed in terms of Iran's uh, progress on their nuclear weapons, sort of all the developments that have happened since the original agreement was signed in 2015 and since uh, Trump, the Trump administration, I think, rightly pulled us out uh, of the agreement in 2018, it might not be possible to put Humpty Dumpty back together. Yeah, that's again. what I've heard a little about. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so now you have also, very interesting, I, I mentioned earlier Israel is now uh, sort of, um, I think, trying to test and probe the resolve of the Biden team with the announcement of this, these new settlements, which, of course, we know that the Biden team absolutely hates the Abraham Accords. Uh, I've been following Ben Rhodes on Twitter for the last several weeks, and he has been ripping the Abraham Accords as one-sided, childish, naive, unfair, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I would foresee an attempt by the Biden team to try to return to the, you know, the status quo ex ante, where they try to get us back into uh, two-state solution talks, where they start talking about linkage again and prioritizing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, trying to get Israel to basically go back to the pre-67 lines. Again, I don't think that's remotely possible, but I could foresee the Biden team really trying to fight for that and really wasting, frankly, the first at least year of their tenure, uh, you know, trying to restore a situation that, frankly, never really existed in the Middle East. Uh, just so Biden can get a deal that he thinks he needs to get, which he won't. Um, and, uh, you know, Turkey now is resurgent. Uh, Turkey is basically in regional conflict with, um, you know, its neighbors, fellow NATO allies like Greece. Uh, they're in conflict with Egypt. They're in conflict with Israel. They're now, you know, they're, they're on and off conflict with Russia. They're constantly, you know, dinging us. They're, 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 uh, at one time they're doing these trade deals with Iran, but then they're also, uh, they're concerned that Iranian power and influence will grow, uh, beyond what they can control. And of course, Turkey wants to reclaim the Ottoman Empire, which means they have to be the dominant, uh, power in the region. And then Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is looking to Biden and they're going to start challenging Biden as well. Um, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the young leader of, of Saudi Arabia, hated John Kerry, disliked Joe Biden, has no desire to deal with Joe Biden. And so my great concern is that if Joe Biden comes in and restores the Iran nuclear agreement and starts dinging Israel again and starts going after Turkey, what you could see with Saudi Arabia uh, is one of two things. Either MBS makes a cynical calculation and says, I can't beat the Iranians on my own, so I'm just going to do a deal with them and kind of coordinate with them, and we'll push the Americans out, and, we'll, and, and I'm allied with Russia and China, and they'll balance against Iran any kind of problem that I may have with the Iranians. Or MBS and the Gulf states could freak out because they think the Americans are leaving them holding the bag, 
and Saudi Arabia could complete that initial order they put into Pakistan for 19 nuclear weapons that the CIA in 2009 stopped from happening. But they're still on back order. And so, you know, you really could be watching the beginnings of a third world war over the next couple of years in the Middle East, all because of American fecklessness as the new administration takes over. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Brandon, thank you for that uh, tour. Uh, Can we talk about, on the other side of this break, can we talk a little bit about your views on social media, big tech, and censorship? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know where you are on it, but I have a feeling no matter what, it'll be interesting. Well, thank you. (laughs) We'll be right back with Brandon Weicker, The Weicker Report. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, as he is every Monday, um, t- talking and arguing and debating and instructing on the world. Uh, Brandon, um, social media, uh, a lot of us have taken it for granted. Um, a lot of us have uh, relied on it. Um, a lot of us spend a lot of time on it. And um, something is turning here quite fast, and we're all seeming to play catch-up. Um, I think a Big move was uh, the deplatforming of certain people from the president on down. I think an even bigger move was yeah. when, you know, we were told so many times, "Well, then start your own." Okay, so someone did Parlor and <laughs> Amazon deplatformed Parlor. Yeah. Uh, this 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 seems to be to me a mad rush toward forgetting everything we used to know about the concept of free speech. Yes, and I I. I saw your, uh, heard your, um, your monologue. I agreed with much on that. Um, my only thing is none of this would have happened this way, at least as quickly and painfully and nastily as it has, had we not had the events of January 6th. And we know that for both the left and the right, social media has been, and also frankly, for extremist groups the world over, Social media has been almost the number one conduit for radicalization of political players. Um, and, um, you know, I think that this is all happening now. Now, I think, I think these media companies, social media companies are using this as an excuse this, they, but to, to do things that they've wanted to do for years. But I do, I do have to, you know, kind of raise a yellow flag here on people and say, you know, the president this did not happen to him until after those events and um happened to the biden story in october it did you're right it did about that too uh but i'm saying in terms of deplatforming specific people well it deplatformed an entire newspaper didn't it for a day yes and and it wasn't right um but i'm saying that that we're seeing this sort of mass uh move this purge, and that's the right word here. There's a reason, though, and it, and it's I think it's being abused. Uh, but they're using that as a cover to do what they've always wanted to do, but never could do. At least not. I mean, remember that, like you said, they took out the New York Post, but 24 hours later, the backlash was so great they didn't have a leg to stand on. Now they think they do, and they're going to run with it. And um, you know, the concern is that. We've had for the last decade a radicalization of the left and right through social media, and it's one of the things that I've tracked for years. Uh, and, um, you know, here we are now where you've had, you know, you just had in Manhattan today the, the black-clad Antifa 
uh, you know, helmeted people marching through the streets. You had an Antifa rioter within this larger extremist right-wing group that hit the hill, and when they arrested him and they asked him, why were you there? He said, I'm taking notes for when we go. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my, my concern is this. Personally, um, I hate social media, and I think it's ruined my generation. I'm a millennial, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's ruining the American political experience, even more so than television and 24-hour news has. And so I would just love it if Americans from both parties checked out of me social media, uh, because I think this is a key area of how these very small groups of radicals are galvanizing. They then embed themselves within what are mostly peaceful protest movements, and then they use crowd dynamics to, to you know, agitate the crowd. And then you have these, these radicals who were organized along on social media acting you know, lashing out, and then they get the whole movement blamed for what was really a small group of people, uh, malcontents, acting, uh, you know, as malcontents. And so I would love it, frankly, if both parties could come together and say, if you're going to deplatform people based on what you consider to be hate speech, well, why don't we look at the overall social media nexus and go after the companies that are acting as publishers and getting all these tax benefits, why don't we go after you as a utility then? Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're basically, if you're going to deplatform one person or one side and not other people who are doing the exact same thing but from a political ideology of your choice, then you are no longer protected under the Section 230, and you are now becoming a publisher, and you need to be, uh, you know, you're, you're not, you're in violation of your agreements. And so... Uh, that's something that I would love to see, but I do think we need to understand where we are. We are here right now because of the extremism that we've experienced from both the right and the left now, uh, at least for the last year. And it's going to get worse until everybody kind of goes to their neutral corners, I think, and figures out what they can agree on and that they cannot use violence to achieve their end. This is not the way. And social media is going to keep abusing this until both parties come together and say you cannot abuse one side over the other. Obviously, if someone's yelling fire in a crowded building, that person's going to be punished. But everyone you're, you're you know, exiling, these people, most of them are old ladies. They're not, they're not the, you know, they're not the great threat of our time. But we do have to understand how we got here. And it is part of, it is, it is a lot of it is the left's fault, but a lot of it is also the hard right's fault. And, you know, I guess, I I guess where I disagree yeah. with you, though, is that it's not due to right and left extremism, because I don't know of any left wing extremism that has suffered from Twitter or Facebook's cancellation. Nothing, no, no. nothing from last summer. Got... I'm not saying they were canceled. I'm okay. saying that they were using the platform to organize. OK, that's what I thought is that the, so, the, the ability to use social media is allowing them to organize these events. It's allowing them to coordinate and communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's galvanizing them into extremism, and then they kind of grow the group. They propagate out. Sure. Like sure. And so, you know, that's what I was talking about. But For no, sure, you, but, I, but there's no interest in the part of Jack Dorsey to put yeah, a stop no. to that on one side. After all, he gave $10 million to Ibrahim Kendi. Yes. Right? I mean, yes, there, I he has... All that. Right, yes. okay. Okay. Yeah, but I'm just saying that, you know, now it's a lot easier for them to do this, and we're seeing it, um, because of the fact that, because of what happened on January 6th. And, 
you know, 70 percent of the Trump voters opposed violence. Uh, of course, and that's really the point, though, isn't so, it? That they have you know, now. It's just, yes, that's the point, though. I think extremists it's... have now given cover to these radical left oligarchs mm-hmm. to come in and just basically cleave everybody from the herd. And obviously, if you can't mass, you can't organize, you can't overcome. And so, you know, it's just it. I just I really, really wish that that hadn't happened on January 6th. Because I really don't think that the president would have been banned, no matter how badly they wanted to do it. I really don't think millions of Americans would have lost access to these things. And I don't think Parler would have been banned had it not been for the excuse of January 6th. Because now that event is being used to besmirch the entire movement. And I have a feeling most Americans are going along with that perception. Oh, I think they're going along with it. Yeah, but I I think they're going along with it because that's become the cultural narrative Though I think the real problem is that, and I think it's greater than 70 percent in the Republican Party that opposed it, I think the real problem is that they have gotten away with what they have been saying for years, which is all Republicans are extremists. See? See what a few hundred or maybe a few thousand people did? Well, that represents 70 million when, in fact, it simply doesn't. Brandon, we love you. And uh, I want to encourage people, of course, to check your website out, The Weikert Report, and your book, Winning Space, one of the most important national security books of the last year. And we'll catch up more next week. God bless you. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. it's, It's becoming eminently clear that uh, there are few institutions, fewer and fewer institutions and outlets that have not been um, taken over by the left, talk radio being one of them. I'm going to bring on a guest in the top of the next hour who just wrote a piece on that. But um, also increasingly clear to me that my worry is is ever greater about this issue of censorship. And people will say, well, this isn't a First Amendment issue when Simon & Schuster counsels Josh Hawley's book, because it's a private corporation, but they published this year Sister Soldier's book, who is advocating advocated killing of people based on race. Um, it is not a First Amendment issue when a private corporation deplatforms or censors or bans, which is what they did. Let's call it what it is when they ban um, a conservative uh, speaker because of the content or viewpoint that that speaker has because it's a private corporation. I'm not saying it's a First Amendment issue. I think it should be. Come, I think it should become one. That's a different debate. But it is a free speech issue, um, which is what undergirds the First Amendment. And the notion that the response of a listener, the agitated response of an unwound or unbridled or incontinent listener should be the reason to censor speech has been the argument to censor speech under the First Amendment from the very beginning, which is why I am with really the entirety of Supreme Court jurisprudence on this notion of the heckler's veto. That's what it's called, that because someone may hear something and go nuts that you can't have the speaker speak his otherwise uh, normal, um, normal words, normal speech. That that this 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 will ultimately lead to no speech whatsoever. I mean, it would silence Bernie Sanders because someone was a supporter of his and then took up a gun and shot up a baseball game uh, trying to kill Republicans. Douglas, just Justice William O. Douglas, wrote that the vitality of civil and political institutions in our society depends 
on free discussion. Accordingly, a function of free speech is to invite dispute. It may indeed, he writes, best serve its high purpose when it induces a condition of unrest, creates dissatisfaction with conditions as they are, or even stirs people to anger. Speech is often provocative and challenging. Close quote. William O. Douglas. This is what the founders and the Enlightenment and the people who are not afraid of ideas have thought since the beginning of time. And to blame the speaker for the actions of the insane or the extreme is to lower all of us to the level of extreme and insane. And that is something up with what which we cannot any longer tolerate.